70 to 80% of your immune system is physically located in your gut. So you have the trillions of microbes on one side and the trillions of immune cells on the other side, and they're constantly interacting. So that gives us an important clue that to optimize our immune system, we really have to optimize our gut health. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Tyler, Texas, and Bangkok, Thailand. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 63 of season 5, number 362 overall. Inflammation Nation, that is where we are living, my friend. Get this, as of 2022, there are 197,163 fast food restaurants in the United States. That is according to industry research firm IBIS World. And that's just fast food. It doesn't account for the gazillion products that are taking up the majority of space on grocery store shelves or at your local 7-Eleven or even the bodegas in New York. It seems wherever you are, good food can be hard to find. And that is a major problem on so many levels. But the one we will be focusing on today is how that is affecting your immune system. Your immune system is a complex machine, and in terms of keeping you healthy, it is about as big of a machine as it gets. Dr. Robin Chutkin just said in the opening clip that up to 80% of your immune system lives right in your gut. So that is where we will be spending most of our time today, smack dab in your gut, giving it a tune-up and the knowledge that you need to keep your gut nice and cool, even if everyone else is on fire in this inflammation nation. We're gonna be talking about her tips for optimizing your microbiome to build an antiviral gut that is strong as an ox, one that's able to fight viruses like Muhammad Ali, a championship prize fighter able to knock out these harmful and pesky viruses that dare to step in the ring with your antiviral gut. We're also going to be looking at how your microbiome and your immune function can dramatically shift as you begin to march toward this healthier life. I mean, it can be really struggling and massively inflamed, but with the transformation you're making, your jaw will be left on the floor. Don't ever count yourself out. So let's get those tips for ramping up the immune system and putting out the flames of this inflammation nation. And let's learn how to build that antiviral gut with Dr. Robin Chutkin. Thank you so very much for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. As I've told you before, Chuck, I'm such a fan of everything that PCRM does. So it is great to be a part of this podcast. And I'm a fan of yours. You are somebody who I've had my eye on and you've been on my guest wish list for so long. And then lo and behold, I'm dead serious. And lo and behold, when I get the list of speakers for the conference this year, your name's on it. I'm like, hot diggity. It's finally going to happen. 
<laughs> oh boy. Um, so at the conference, you're going to be talking about the anti-inflammatory gut. And of course that brings the uh, immune system into the equation as well. And I think Dr. Chuck, and when a lot of people think about the immune system, they just think like white blood cells. They think it's just this magical thing that's in their blood. And when they get the sniffles, the blood's going to take care of it. But a lot of it really starts in the gut. So when you're talking about having a healthy immune system, how much of that is driven by what's going on in the belly? That's absolutely right, Chuck. In fact, about 70 to 80% of your immune system is physically located in your gut. It is literally these immune cells that are on the right on the other side of the lining of the gut membrane. So you have the trillions of microbes on one side and the trillions of immune cells on the other side, and they're constantly interacting. So really the immune system is very much a gut-based organ. And so that gives us an important clue that to optimize our immune system, we really have to optimize our gut health. And how does one go about doing that? We've heard so many different ways that a person can do that here on the exam room, but in your expertise, how does somebody do that? Well, a lot of our gut health has to do with really those early, early moments when we're born. You know, are we, do we have the advantage of being born a vaginal birth where as we come through the birth canal, we're colonized with all our mother's wonderful microbes, or do we have the less advantageous beginnings of a C-section where we're colonized with hospital-acquired microbes? Are we breastfeed, breastfed or not? What are our early experiences? Do we have sufficient exposure to soil microbes, the food, the environment? All of these things are important. But as adults, Chuck, the most important thing really in terms of building a healthy microbiome is what you're putting inside your GI tract. And that shouldn't come as a surprise, right? Because this is all going on in your gut. So it makes sense that what you're putting into your gut really informs what you're growing there. All right. And so... I'm looking at the trends here recently. I've been pulling a lot of data so I can sound halfway smart on this show. And I'm just looking at the obesity trends in this country and they continue to go up and up and up and up. And we even saw even a bit of a spike here uh, during the pandemic. And so when somebody uh, I see is packing on the pounds from ex my own experience anyway, I can tell you that uh, probably they're eating a lot of things that wouldn't be categorized as healthy. Um, so when somebody is eating that unhealthy, high fat, high calorie comfort food type of diet, what kind of damage is going on with their gut at that point? Yeah, it's, you know, these things are all related and connected. And it's not a coincidence that when we look at predictors of morbidity and mortality, so, you know, bad outcome as well as death for viral illnesses like COVID, we see obesity at the top of the list. And that's because obesity dramatically affects your microbiome, the health of your immune system, et cetera. Again, there's this bi-directionality. So we know that adipose tissue and people who are overweight or obese is immunologically active and unfortunately not in a super helpful way. And those foods that people are eating that are often, you know, as you mentioned, high animal protein, high animal fat, also high sugar foods, those things affect what you're growing. You know, it, it's like a little zoo. So if you're not feeding the zoo animals, our microbes, the organisms, the correct food, you're going to cultivate different organisms. So for example, if we look at Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, which we abbreviate as F. prosnitzii. F. prosnitzii is the most prevalent microbe in vegans, in people who eat a lot of plants, but you can't just go and borrow some F. prosnitzii from your vegan friend. 
And it's important to have high levels of F-prosnet-CI because it's protective against cardiovascular disease, metabolic diseases, diabetes, and COVID. In a large study, having high levels of F-prosnet-CI was really a very, very accurate predictor of good outcome from COVID. And having low levels of F-prosnet-CI was correlated with having a worse outcome, being more likely to be on a ventilator, ICU, and even death. So again, this stuff is all connected. And not to say that you can't be overweight and healthier, there's certainly you know, gradations of health that correlate differently with weight. But um, it is when we look at the large studies, that sort of diet that almost always is going to lead to weight gain an extra adiposity is very clearly correlated with worse outcomes from viral illnesses. So we want people to have the information to make the connection because these are modifiable risk factors. It's not like age where, you know, that's how old you are. So this, this F prosnitsky, am I pronouncing that correctly? Prosnitsky, yeah. It's prosnitsky. P-R-A-U-S-N-I-T-Z-I-I. I love, you know, fecalibactrium prosnitsky. I mean, these names are just fantastic. <laughs> Would I be correct in assuming then that one measures how much of that is in a person's body through a stool sample, given the fact that it, fecalibacterium prosnitsii, I mean, fecali, <laughs> am, am I wrong or am I off base? No, you're, you're absolutely right. These are through stool samples. And keep in mind that, you know, the microbiome testing that we can do with stool samples is very much in its infancy. So, you know, this is not 100% predictive, but when we do a sample and we break down the genetic material of the bacteria, we are able to get a good sense of the ratio in terms of the representation. And so we have good data that correlates eating lots of plants with having high levels of F. prosnitsii. So there's really not, not any debate about that. All right. So let me ask just kind of a patient level question. Is it because that uh, is already on the plant when you consume it, or is that something that your body actually produces? It's a great question, but it's because you're feeding the healthy bacteria. And, and to sort of make that gut immune connection, I'm glad you asked about that. When you eat a high fiber diet, you increase the populations of the type of bacteria like F. prosnitsii that thrive on fiber. Those bacteria, F. prosnitsii and others, then take that dietary fiber and ferment it and make something called short chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are critical for the health of the gut, but they're not just important for the health of the gut. They're also critical for the immune system. They create balance in the immune system. So adequate levels of short-chain fatty acids, you have what I like to call the Goldilocks immune system. Active enough to clear a virus, but not so active that you end up overreacting and you end up in that category of cytokine storm and other problems that we know that people can have in response where your immune system sort of overshoots the mark and in trying to clear the virus or whatever pathogen you're fighting, you end up destroying normal tissue. So short-chain fatty acids, again, are central to that process of immune balance, that Goldilocks immune system that we want everyone to have. And how do you get high levels of short-chain fatty acids? You eat lots of fiber, you grow a good population of f prosnitsii, and they create the short-chain fatty acids. So there's just incredible symbiosis in how this all comes together. Is it? Yeah. So it's not possible to have one without the other. Um, I'm surprised in all of my conversations with Dr. Will Bolsowitz, uh, this one has not uh, popped up um, as a topic. You know, that that's that's pretty interesting to me. So uh, indeed, to his hypothesis, a fiber fueled gut is a healthy gut. That's kind of what I'm surmising here. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is, you know, there, we debate a lot of things in medicine. There are a lot of things we still don't know, et cetera. But again, this connection between having a diet that's high in indigestible plant fiber, so fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, et cetera, and the short chain fatty acids and the connection between that and the health of the immune system is really irrefutable at this point. How long could it take for somebody to start to bolster their immune system if they've been eating the standard American diet for decades at this point? You know, they're they're about halfway home. They're in their uh, late 40s, early 50s, and they are carrying so much extra weight with them. Um, how quickly can that immune system kind of rebound when right now um, it's probably kind of suppressed? The beautiful thing about this, Chuck, is how quickly this can happen. And unlike our genes, which are more static, and of course, our genes change too, right? Genes get activated and inactivated, but our genes are much more static. But our microbiome is very dynamic. So there was a really important landmark study that was published in the journal Nature in 2014. And that study took nine volunteers and they put them on a typical sort of Atkins diet, Chuck, high fat, high animal protein, prosciutto and pork rinds, literally. And they looked at the microbiome before, during, and after, and then they rested those same nine volunteers for about five days, and they put them on a plant-based diet, jasmine rice, lentils, mango, instead of pork rinds for snack, and they examined the microbiome. And what they found was that within about 30 hours of food hitting the gut, things started to change dramatically. So one of the biggest changes was the bilophilia, the bile-loving bacteria that are present when there's a lot of animal protein, animal fat to be broken down, dropped significantly on the plant-based diet, not surprisingly. But what was surprising, Chuck, is that the genes also started to change. They saw genes that were turned on and off based on the dietary change. And again, this is in less than two days. This is 30 hours and so as we think about disease expression, and you know, for decades, we've thought of diseases as genetic. But what we're really realizing is the genes are just a suggestion. For so many of these diseases, what actually determines whether the disease happens, whether the gene gets expressed, are these other triggers. And it turns out that the microbes are very involved in triggering these events and turning a gene on or off. So you could have a genetic predisposition, for example, to heart disease. But based on what's going on in the diet, those genes may never get activated and you may never actually have a cardiac event versus you know, the opposite way around based on what you're eating and the effect of the food on the microbes and then the microbes on the genes. So to me, it's such an optimistic message of how we can literally change our health with every forkful. All right. So I, I just want to kind of back this up and get the brass tacks answer here. So what you have just said to us is that within 30 hours even if you have been eating the most unhealthy diet for 50 years, your body is already beginning to um, go through the healing process. It's starting to repair itself. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. And now, obviously, it's not 30, now, 30 hours and then done. But no. that is the speed at which we start to see these changes, not just on a microbial level, but on a cellular and genetic level. See, now you talk about hope. I mean, that's fantastic because we live in this immediate society now, like I want it and I want it now. And I think that when somebody's kind of at the rock bottom, 
you know, if somebody were to have explained to me when I was still 420 pounds, like, hey, Chuck, within 30 hours, your body's going to start to repair itself. It would have made me kind of get on the wagon and stay there for good, probably much sooner than I already had, because that would have been like one heck of a, a brass ring to be reaching for. That is amazing to me. And I know that you've been practicing medicine now for a little while. Like, are you still blown away by just when, when you get the opportunity to talk about how resilient the body can actually be? Like, isn't that just kind of mind blowing to you? Every day, Chuck, literally every day. And I'll tell you, I graduated from medical school in 1991, so 31 <laughs> years ago. And I went to a fantastic medical school. I went to Columbia, had the best medical training. I was four years of medical school at Columbia. I did an internship. I did two years of residency. I was chief resident. So I was 10 years at this institution. And I proudly say, I still think Columbia is the best medical school out there. But there's a but. In my medical training at Columbia, in my gastroenterology fellowship down the street at Mount Sinai in New York, I mean, amazing world-class institutions. But we were really focused on what? What do you have? Do you have Crohn's? Do you have ulcerative colitis? Is it your gallbladder? Is it an ulcer? Is it your liver? Do you have hepatitis? Is it B or C? There was very little focus on why. You know, we were busy diagnosing conditions, figuring out the treatment. And so this is a question that we all need to be asking is why? If you've been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, why is your gut irritable? If you've been diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, why do you have this inflammation? You know, what is going on in your body that is causing these results? Because as I'm fond of reminding people, very rarely does disease just literally fall out of the sky into our laps. Sometimes it does. Some of us are just dealt a bad hand genetically in a way that is going to cause disease no matter what. But for the most part, even again, these genetic diseases are modified by our diet, our environment, our lifestyle choices, even our thoughts, even the amount of stress that is going on, that a lot of it is, you know, how we're reacting to something, the situation is stressful, but how we're reacting is really what's creating the stress can modify these risk factors. So, you know, it, my whole perspective has shifted so much from I'm the doctor on the pedestal, I'm going to give you the information, make you better to actually know this is absolutely a dialogue. And what it's my great honor and pleasure to do is to give you information to empower yourself so that you can heal yourself. And, and, you know, we can just wave at each other at the farmer's market or on the yoga mat and you're good. And, and again, not to suggest that we don't need doctors. We don't need medical intervention. We absolutely do. And I'm grateful for all these incredible medications we have, incredible medical procedures we have. But I think, you know, if we arm people with this essential and quite frankly, Chuck, pretty basic information, they can avoid needing a lot of this stuff and they can save it for when it's really needed as opposed to really you know, being plugged into that medical industrial complex and just on that treadmill. And, you know, different articles have given different numbers, but clearly well above 50% of what we consider excess mortality and cardiovascular mortality in particular, which is one of the leading cause, if not the leading cause of deaths of Americans, is preventable. It is preventable. And to me, again, it's such a message of empowerment and hope 
and optimism. And uh, that's why I'm so delighted to be a part of this and to be a part of the PCRM community, which is all about, quite frankly, patient empowerment and optimism and hope. That's just it. I mean, people think that they've been dealt this lot in life, and that's just the way that it is, right? So for me, uh, once I lost the weight, I was still fearful of Alzheimer's disease, right? Like it terrified me. But then having the opportunity to do this show and listening to experts such as yourself explain the whole uh, idea of turning genes on and turning genes off and you having that power within the palm of your hand or at the end of your fork and on your plate, that to me makes me feel even better about the decisions that I'm making and, and what a privilege it is to be able to share that type of information with so many listeners now around the world and, and passing that hope on because it is my hope that they don't become selfish with that. I can't imagine that they would. They're going to want to share that with other people in their life as well. And pretty soon you're spreading this healthy message literally Beautiful. around the world. Beautiful. Yep. It really, Chuck, I'm, I'm curious about your concern about Alzheimer's. Did you have a family history of Alzheimer's? Oh, a very strong one. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and grandmother had it. Uh, both of her uh, siblings had it. So those would be my great aunt and uncle. Um, it's now starting to, uh, there's concern among my uh, my aunts and uncles that it could be trickling in there. We've seen some cases of uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, and so I've always felt like I'm kind of just this ticking time bomb. Um, and so it was, uh, yeah, that, that one's always been there just as heart disease was for me, uh, when I was overweight, you know, like, uh, my, my, uh, grandfather on my father's side passed away before I was born. And my own father has had a series of uh, heart procedures. Now my grandfather on my mother's side, he too, uh, had had a, a heart attacks, had a bypass surgery. And, um, I knew I was a ticking time bomb there, but, uh, even with the weight gone, yeah, Alzheimer's was still very, very, very much, uh, in my thoughts. So I'll tell you, Chuck, we share that history. My mother, who's, you know, wonderful and otherwise perfectly healthy 82-year-old, literally, my mom takes no medication. She, her only medical history is she had a bunionectomy about 40 years ago, <laughs> removal of a bunion. She is 82. She is her high school weight. She's trim. She was an athlete all her life, but she has quite advanced Alzheimer's. And we have a very strong family history. So her mother, both of her, two of her grand aunts. I mean, generally, generationally, you see the penetrance of the, of the gene in the family. And I know that I have one copy of the APOE4 gene, just one copy. So increased risk, but not, you know, train leaving the tracks no matter what you do. And again, what we're finding about, out about diseases like Alzheimer's is, again, these are not monolithic diseases. There are multiple things that inform that outcome of whether or not we will have Alzheimer's. And that obviously diet is huge. Other things, you know, we talk about stress, we talk about exposure to soil microbes, etc. And again, a lot of this is modulated by the microbiome. Now, something like dementia is complex, right? It's not just a straight line from what's going on in your gut to dementia. Medications play a big role. We know that a lot of medications that cross the blood-brain barrier taken chronically can affect brain health. But the point is, and I'm so glad you made it, Chuck, is that we are not just ticking time bombs. These are modifiable risks. And you mentioned heart disease. My husband has a very strong family history of heart disease. His father 
died tragically from a cardiac event in his 70s, but he had his first cardiac event at around 50. And when I first met my husband, he was, was over 20 years ago, he was, to say he was paranoid was an understatement about heart disease. And he went plant-based some years, several years ago after um, being at the Esselstyn's conference, Plant Stock, and hearing a lot of the people from this community, including Dr. Bernard, Dr. Greger, all the, you know, Dr. Esselstyn, all these wonderful, wonderful plant-based physicians. And he said, right, that's it. We, we were in Asheville. We went to Charlotte. He had a big steak, some foie gras, and said, okay, that's it. I'm done. And what happened in the next couple months is astounding. So his cholesterol dropped from around mid-200s down to about 160. His calcium score went to zero. And his cardiologist, who's a good friend, said, listen, don't come back. You're good. <laughs> I mean, this didn't happen immediately, of course. But And he does other things. He does yoga. He runs trails. But he eats so beautifully. And, you know, when we first met, he was constantly asking me, like, check my cholesterol. And what do you think? And now, like, he hasn't checked his cholesterol in a couple of years. He doesn't need to. His cholesterol is good. He's solid. I dare say there is no plaque, additional plaque that is going to be developing in those arteries that's coming to get him. And it is such a feeling of serenity, quite frankly, and safety and comfort. And he, you know, he's not 100%. Occasionally over the holidays, he will eat some animal protein. So he's not 100% vegan. He doesn't use labels. But I would say he's about 98% plant-based. And, and when he does stray during holidays or special occasion or vacation, he'll say to me, oh, I can't wait to get back and just like get back to my, you know, oatmeal in the morning and salad for lunch and, you know, sauteed veggies and hummus for dinner. He, um, you know, in addition to having that peace of mind about cardiovascular disease, which was really sort of the thing, as you said, you know, that was so terrifying to him, he also feels better in his body. So there's that too. And I always encourage people, like, it's great if you can make a full transformation. But if you just eat more plants, just start with that. Because, you know, as you start to feel better, and as you feel the changes in your gut and throughout your body, it will propel you, you will want to do more. Absolutely. A lot of these studies that get talked about in the media and even some that I talk about here on the show, um, just talk about eating more plants, not necessarily an exclusively plant-based diet, but the data in these studies at all points to man, just eat your fruits and vegetables and you're doing a world of good. You know, like mom was right all those years ago, you know, eat something green for goodness sakes, and you're going to be in much better shape than you are today. So um, true. What a transformation your husband had. I, here's something that I've always kind of wondered, um, and you're a gastroenterologist, so you're the perfect person to, to answer this, right? So in terms of how my gut was back when I was still overweight, eating those 10,000 calories a day, uh, how is the bacteria today eating this exclusively plant-based diet at 140 pounds? How is that different? from what it was when I was 420 pounds. Is the change inside as dramatic as it was on the outside? Absolutely. So there are these four families of bacteria that inhabit the human body and the four main ones. There are more than four, but the four big ones are Firmicutes, Bacteroidetes, Actinobacteria, and Proteobacteria. And by far, Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes make up 
generally, you know, upwards of 90% in most people with actino and proteo much lower. And what we know is that with that dietary change or, you know, and it goes in both directions, if you're gaining a couple hundred pounds or as in your case, losing, which by the way, you know, bravo, like such an incredible thing that you did. But we know that the microbial profile from a high level phyla, the families, is different. So typically we see higher ratios of Formicates to Bacteroidetes. And, you know, I remind people like, it's very easy to start classifying good bacteria versus bad bacteria. But, you know, if I were in a room full of people and I said, everybody who's a good person, raise your right hand. And everybody who's a bad person, raise your left hand. A lot of us would have both hands out. You know, we're good sometimes and not so good other times. We're a little bit good or a lot good, a little bit bad. So we're sort of pluripotential. And so are bacteria. So it's not just the presence of one organism versus the other. It's also what they're doing metabolically. What sort of bacterial metabolites are they producing? And those can shift. But, you know, having said that, there are certain bacteria that we know in these ratios that are more typical of an obese microbiome versus a lean microbiome. And this idea of, you know, it's just calories. Calories are an artificial construct. A lot of this has to do in terms of what your energy harvest is, which is the amount of calories you extract from the food absolutely has to do with what's going on microbially because microbes can change that energy harvest. They can increase or decrease the motility of the food through the GI tract. So there's more or less time for absorption. They can change your palate. They can make you crave sweeter or more savory. They can use up the extra calories themselves. So if you take two people who are microbially different and you give them the exact same meal of, you know, 400 calories, their energy harvest could be different. So again, what is going on inside our gut is absolutely reflected in some of these things. And as you said, you know, you look different externally, but you also for sure look very different internally. And, um, you know, that's, that's the science. That's what we know. Epigenetics for the win. That stuff fascinates me, right? I mean, studies like that are just incredible. Um, it's certainly not to that extreme, but I did interview a set of twin brothers um, who did a vegan experiment. They're very fit, uh, both of them, they're explorers. Um, but basically one went vegan and one didn't, and they did. Uh, they enhanced their workouts, tried to put on more muscle. It turns out that the twin who went vegan actually was able to build uh, leaner muscle mass, more leaner muscle mass than the non-vegan twin. And I, I think that that really shocked a lot of people uh, when that happened. I mean, you're talking about playing a game with the same set of DNA, um, but yeah. you're just dealt two different hands. And, and the outcomes were just mind-blowing to me. And I love that. Actually, that same conference at Plant Stock, where my husband had his plant transformation, um, they debuted, they premiered the film Game Changers. And that was, I mean, that was, so we got a sneak peek at it before, you know, it was out on Netflix, et cetera. And that was incredible. And I think so important because people have this association with protein and muscle, right? Of course, you need to eat tons of animal protein to gain muscle. And so seeing all these incredible vegan athletes and bodybuilders who are strong and muscular and at the same time lean was, I think, very eye-opening for a lot of people. It, it is. And, um, <laughs> and the, the funny thing is like also having covered the NFL and pro sports for a number of years um, that I can tell you that that stigma, it still very much exists. 
but the the story that I always tell is going out, and this was after I had started doing the exam room, but then going out to the practice facility for the Washington Commanders and interviewing a defensive back, a gentleman by the name of DJ Swearinger, who was 98, he's kind of like your husband, 98% plant-based, maybe 2% pescatarian. And, you know, it's toward the end of the season. And this guy, instead of, you know, his teammates who are just laboring with every single step that they take, their bodies are so beaten down. Well, here's DJ who's played daggone near every down that entire season. He's got as much energy as he had when he reported for training camp and was fresh as a daisy. It was the daggondest thing. Yeah, it's definitely from a performance point of view. I'm a I'm not an elite athlete. I'm a slow plodding marathoner. You and me um, both. But uh, you know, never break four hours in the marathon. But glad to finish, and definitely south of four thirty. So I have to <laughs> brag a little bit there. But um, yeah, absolutely. It is. You know, you hear story after story, and you read about it. You know, in the sports news and the popular press about more and more professional athletes really making that that switch to being plant-based and really doing it because of performance. I mean, you're an elite athlete, your entire career, income, everything, identity depends on your performance. You're not doing it if there's not also, you know, some advantage from a performance point of view for most of these athletes. No question about it. And let's uh, bring it back to uh, the gut here as we kind of wind things down. If somebody's watching this today, they're listening to it, they're like, hey, Okay, I want to get started on this, but what are the healthiest foods that I can start with? What are the first ones that you think or would, would you recommend that somebody introduce to their system? I think legumes and fermented foods are, and again, I don't want to create too much of a hierarchy, but when we think about what we call MACs, MACs, which stands for microbiota accessible carbohydrates, we're primarily talking about whole grains and legumes. And um, so that would be things like beans and brown rice and, and things like that. And these foods and oats create really, again, it's a fiber that feeds the gut bacteria and fermented foods because fermented foods are that powerhouse combination of pre and probiotic. And to explain, if you look at something like sauerkraut, it's made from cabbage primarily, the cabbage itself is a very fibrous food. So that's going to feed your gut bacteria when you eat it. But in the process of fermentation, the cabbage is broken down and, and produces a lot of lactobacillus bacteria and other healthy substances that when you eat that, that's also increasing your population of lactobacillus. So you're feeding your native microbes and you're introducing some additional microbes from the food. So I think, you know, just, and the beauty of this, Chuck, is just small amounts. I mean, you could be having, you know, it's not sauerkraut as your main meal. You could be having a tablespoon or two of fermented food with a meal, you know, a tablespoon at lunch, a tablespoon at dinner. You could be adding um, some chickpeas to a salad. Again, it doesn't mean this all or nothing, like beans or nothing. And, you know, you're walking around and you're gassy. It's just adding in sprinkles of these things. And, Chuck, you're probably familiar with this incredible study from the American Gut Project that was published a few years ago. And they looked at the number of plants people ate. And this was a, a, a global study with over 10,000 people. And they didn't look at the label. They didn't look at, okay, you're a vegetarian, you're a pescatarian, you're a vegan. Because, you know, you can be vegan and be very unhealthy. And you can be an omnivore and, and eat a lot of plants. So they looked at what people were actually eating. And they found the magic number was 30. People who were eating 30 or more different plants 
per week had really just a superior microbiome, a healthier microbiome, and people who are eating 10 or fewer, regardless of what they call themselves, you'd be a vegan eating 10 or fewer different plants per week. Their microbiomes were significantly less healthy. And, you know, that might sound daunting, like 30 or more plants per week. Oh, but, you know, if you break it down, if you're having oatmeal in the morning, let's say you're using almond milk, one, the oats, two, you're putting in some walnuts, three, pumpkin seeds, four, raisins, five, blueberries, six. That's what I actually had for breakfast this morning. That's six plants right there. You have a salad for lunch. You have lettuce, cucumber, avocado, uh, chickpeas. That's four more. So what are we at? Ten. Then for dinner, you have some brown rice, some string beans, maybe another salad that's giving you through. I mean, you can get to 15 in a day without a ton of effort. And, and for, you know, for the omnivores out there, that could be even you're having some fish or a little animal protein, but you're crowding the plate out with really healthy whole grains. You're doing some quinoa, some brown rice. I always tell people, you know, a salad and an additional vegetable. And, you know, in my practice, I tell my patients, follow the one, two, three rule, one vegetable at breakfast, two at lunch, three at dinner, or you can switch it and do a green smoothie in the morning and get a bunch early. But that way you do the one, two, three rule, you're getting in six servings of vegetables per day. So in five days, you've made it to 30. But the trick is you want to do different vegetables. So you don't want to do, okay, I eat vegetables at every meal, but it's peas, carrots, and broccoli, and that's it. You want to, you know, bring in different plants and it, everything doesn't have to be a fibrous vegetable or fruit. Again, nuts and seeds are really important plant foods to think about to get to that magic number. And, you know, rather than calorie counting or looking at macronutrient density and micronutrients, just do this simple game of try to get to 30 different plant foods. There it is. See, you just simplify it. Get to thirty. Simplify it. Yeah. Get get to thirty. And uh, hold on, give us the uh, that that oatmeal uh, concoction that you have for breakfast yeah, this morning. So what, what were the toppings again? Almond milk, mm -hmm. oats, walnuts, pumpkin seeds, raisins, and blueberries. All right. I know what I'm having for breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> were, were these overnight oats or were these hot? No, these were just quick oats. I mean, of course, the instant oats aren't great because most of the fiber is stripped away and there's often added sugar. But this was quick oats. I mean, overnight oats or, you know, the um, the the oats that take a long time to cook are ideal. But, you know, quick oats are fine, too. Quick oats. Yeah. These were not steel cut, which you could do as overnight oats or just take longer to cook. And steel cut oats are going to have the most fiber. Yeah. And I think you just touched on something that you know, I can't speak for the organization. I can just speak for myself here. You, you just kind of touched on something is that, you know, I think a lot of times in the health community, especially when people are really passionate about it, you know, something like, you know, instant oats can get vilified. But I think about like what the majority of people are eating. Like, are you really saying that instant oats are the devil when they're probably going to opt for an egg McMuffin instead? Absolutely. Like That's so true. It is, you know, the perfect can be the enemy of the good and instant oats over the majority of what people are eating for sure is an improvement. Just something to keep in mind, food for yeah. thought. And you're going to have plenty of food for thought at uh, the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, August 18th through the 20th. I can't wait for your presentation. Stop by. We're going to be recording shows all three days. Maybe you come by. We'll answer some questions live and have a grand old time. I would love to. And, and I just have to say this, that 
there are people out there in the medical community who are driven by a lot of different things, but you guys and Dr. Bernard and the whole community, I think are in it for such a right reasons, which is you want to make people healthier. And I just have to say as a physician, as a member of the community, I am so thrilled that you are out here doing this wonderful work. So thank you. You get us. I love it so much. It's absolutely, you. yeah, you get us. Oh my goodness. Uh, the website gutbliss.com is the place to go to uh, check uh, out more with uh, Dr. Robin Chuckin and uh, of course her new book, The Antiviral Gut coming out this fall. Would definitely love to pick that up and uh, have you back on then too. So I guess we're booking you for two appearances now. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm available. The International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine is coming up August 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C. That is literally two days after this episode has been released. Now, we will be on site at the Grand Hyatt Hotel where the conference is being held. We will be recording episodes of the Exam Room podcast all three days of the conference. I'm going to be interviewing a lot of the speakers who will be presenting the latest research on nutrition science. And so in addition to Dr. Chuck, and we're also going to be speaking with Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Gemma Newman, Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Alan Desmond, our old friend, Dr. Monica Agarwal, Dr. Jim Loomis, Dr. Rita Redberg, the editor of JAMA Internal Medicine, and so many more. Nearly 30 speakers in all. And if you're a health professional, CME credits are available. But you don't have to be a doctor or a nurse to join us. You just have to have a passion for health. PCRM.org slash ICNM is the website to visit to save one of the last seats available for the conference. We've also posted a link to that right now in the episode notes. I really do hope to see you there. Join us for a live recording, enjoy some fabulous food, and take that health IQ to a whole new level. Now, I came across some interesting research that I wanted to share with you. This research, it looks at consumer trends when it comes to plant-based products. And what really stood out to me, I found very surprising, is that the data shows that 90% of people who are eating meat and dairy alternatives are in fact meat eaters or flexitarians. Fascinating, right? And it's important too. I'll tell you why. So for the rest of the scoop, Let's head to the exam room news desk. The appetite for plant-based foods is growing across the board, and that is good news for our health and the environment. Researchers at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom reviewed 43 studies on the impact of plant-based foods, making a number of key findings. Their review shows replacing just 5% of beef consumed in Germany with pea protein would slash CO2 emissions by up to 8 million tons per year. Another key finding, plant-based burgers have 98% fewer greenhouse gas emissions compared to traditional beef burgers. And while some plant-based alternatives are still high in fat and sodium, which isn't necessarily good for our health, researchers also say they are still generally better for us than traditional options. 40% of conventional meat products are classified as less healthy compared to just 14% of plant-based products on the UK's nutrient profile. 
profiling model. The massive review also confirms previous research that plant-based meats and dairy alternatives are good for weight loss and building muscle thanks to a wider nutrient profile. Lead researcher Dr. Chris Bryant says, quote, This review demonstrates overwhelming evidence that, as well as being far more sustainable compared to animal products in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, water, and land use, plant-based animal product alternatives also have a wide range of health benefits. And there is a link to the full study in the episode notes. Now, here's something also that Dr. Bryant said that I thought was pretty interesting. And it bodes well for even wider adoption of vegan options in the future. Dr. Bryant also said, quote, Despite the incredible advances that plant-based producers have made over recent years, there is still huge potential to improve their taste, their texture, and how they cook. So what we have now is pretty good, but what we're going to have in the future is even better. And that means even more people will be reaping the benefits of a plant-based diet, improving their health as well as the health of the environment. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to one of these plant-based food expos, but if you ever get a chance to go to one of these and walk around and sample some of the new foods that are coming to market, your mind will be blown. There is so much stuff that's about to be released that is healthier, it is cleaner, and it tastes fantastic. So if 90% of people who are sampling these products now are in fact still eating meat or they consider themselves to be a flexitarian, maybe a good chunk of those 90% will then adopt a completely plant-based diet. Interesting stuff, and a good future is on the horizon, my friend. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Robin Chutkin for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening, and remember... As always, keep it plant-based.